Akamel to open God's word for us. Ooh, that's really working. Not working. Working. We're off to a great start. Let's um, let's we're gonna look at uh, we're gonna look at God's word together. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians two. That's where we're gonna. Uh, that's where we're gonna be. That's I know that um, you know you're used to sort of walking through books of the Bible or, or taking on whole ideas and, and things like that at a time. But you've got a guest preacher today, so we're just gonna sort of bomb into Galatians uh, to, to Galatians two. So we're gonna look at the first sixteen verses of uh, Galatians two, and I'll just I'll say this about Galatians: uh, the question on the table in the book of Galatians is there's a lot of ways to say it, but it's something like this. What makes me right with God? Uh, put another way, what makes a Christian a Christian? Uh, put another way, when and how did God love me? Or when and how did God love you? Uh, so that's the question that's on the table, and what you're going to feel, hopefully, in this passage is that there's some tension over that question. And here's really, again, so much you could say, but here's what's going on when the Apostle Paul who wrote this is answering that question. He's come to this group of people, and he's shared what we call the good news. He's talked about who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished, and that people who believe in Jesus are right with God. They're declared righteous. It's what this whole service has been uh, centered around. It's the thing that, that we're celebrating this morning, the good news of Jesus. And some folks have come behind the Apostle Paul and said, hey, Paul is basically right about this man Jesus. You do need to believe in him, but there's some other things that you need to do in order to, say, stay right with God or, or in order to make sure that you're right with God. So believe in Jesus, yes, but let's make sure we're doing these other things, too, these other very important things. So the issue on the table for them is uh, the issue of circumcision. That's the word he's going to use, is circumcision. That, okay, you've got to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also, uh, you also need to be circumcised. And the Apostle Paul, in effect, is, is writing this letter to the Galatians to go, let's just settle this once and for all. How is it that you are right with God? Or why is it that God loves you? Uh, let me say this, too, before we read the passage. I, I heard uh, an interview with a man who works with men. That's a man's man, I guess. Uh, and he, he is a counselor and spends a lot of time with men. And, and he said the thing that shows up all the time uh, with the men that he interacts with is 
They are all uh, waiting to hear those magic words from their own father. Those magic words. Now, any man in the room or woman, for that matter, uh, knows what those magic words are. They want to hear those magic words from, from dad. He said, in fact, I, I sometimes have heard of uh, a man going to his father's deathbed. And he could tell you in the moment, the reason I'm showing up in the last hours of my father's life is because I want to hear those magic words from, from my dad. Now, you know what those magic words are. Uh, the moon landing was fake. No. Um, I love you. That's what the man wants to hear from his father. That's what everyone wants to hear, really, from, from their father or from someone who's powerful, someone who cares about them. They want to hear, I love you, I'm proud of you. Now, it's not going to seem like it when I read this passage, but this passage is about that question. This passage is about that desire in all of us uh, to hear someone say, I love you. So let's look, Galatians 2, 1 through 16. Here's the Apostle Paul writing. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, also worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we need you as we look at your word. Show us what you're like, show us what we're like, and show us the Lord Jesus, who we need now. We pray in his name. Amen. 
All right, so I, I mentioned that uh, the Apostle Paul is trying to answer this question. And you, the, the other way you could put it is, uh, what is the gospel? But really to say, all right, how is a person made right with God? And the suggestion made by these people other than Paul is that you've got to trust in Jesus, and then you've also got to be circumcised. Now, that's shorthand for saying you've got to obey some Jewish laws. And so what Paul does is he hears that these people are saying this, that, hey, there's, there's faith in Jesus and this other stuff you've got to do. And so he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Titus. And I know there were a lot of names in that passage, but Titus is the one that he mentions. And he says, I'm going to take Titus, who's not circumcised. That is to say, Titus is a person who just believes in Jesus. He's not obeying these Jewish laws that have to do with diet. He hasn't been circumcised. He's not observing Jewish holidays and things like that, the things that these people are saying you've got to do if you want to be right with God. Uh, so I'm going to take Titus with me to go have a conversation with these guys who are saying, hey, you know, you got to do this, this other stuff. Now, the people who he goes to talk to are Peter, James, and John. These are huge players in the New Testament. Now, Peter is uh, Peter who was friends with Jesus. John is John, who was friends with Jesus, he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. So these are two men who spent a bunch of time with Jesus. And James is Jesus' brother, really his half-brother, so to speak. So they, they share a father, but not a mother. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul goes to these men to say, all right, how does it work? How does it work? How can a person be made right with God? And he does this genius thing of bringing Titus with him. And the reason he brings Titus with him is because if those people are going to say, hey, the way that you're right with God is not just by faith, but also by being circumcised, by, by obeying these Jewish rules, they're going to have to say to Titus's face, all right, you've got to start obeying these rules, because he doesn't do it. And really, hey, you're going to have to be circumcised. Uh, it's kind of like if, if you're on a river or a lake or something like that with a bunch of friends, and you come to a place where there's a rope, and you can tell the rope is a swing, you know, that you're supposed to go up on shore and hold on to it and swing out of the water and maybe try a backflip or something like that. Uh, you, you don't want to be the first one to grab onto that rope, okay? You want to see someone preferably heavier than you grab onto that rope and, and try it. So what Paul is doing is basically saying, hey, there's all these people who are like Titus who just believe in Jesus. They're not circumcised. Now, Titus, you go grab onto the rope. See if it works. So he brings Titus to these men to ask the question, okay, you guys tell me, Peter, John, you were so close to Jesus. You know this thing called the gospel. James, you're his brother. How does it work? Does Titus have to be circumcised or not? Uh, those three guys say Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. Just faith. Faith does it. Faith in Jesus, boom, he's good. Now, there's other people there who Paul says, says this weird thing. He says they're there to spy out our freedom in Christ to bring us back into slavery. And here's what I want to think about this morning, is that phrase, freedom in Christ. So two questions. First, how does freedom vertically work? What does it mean to have freedom between us and God? And then second, how does freedom horizontally work? How is it that we can have freedom between one another? And how does this thing called the gospel give us freedom vertically and freedom horizontally? 
Uh, Paul says when those other guys started saying, hey, no, no, Titus is going to have to be circumcised. He's going to have to start obeying these, these rules in order to, uh, to be right with God. Paul says, we didn't give in to them for a second. Not for a second. We weren't going to have it, even for a second. He honestly sounds like, I don't know, a teacher rebuking a student or like a mom rebuking a child. Like, I'm not, we're not having this conversation even for a second. When they start to suggest you got to do something other than just believe in Jesus to be right with God, we're, we're not going to even talk about it. Um, all right, so I, I want to I ask this question. When you think about yourself, you think about your relationship with God, what is it about you that makes you right with God? In other words, how does it work that you could be right with God, that you could be counted righteous before God? I, um, I'm going to do this. Maybe. I'm probably not, actually. I'm nervous. I did it. Okay. I, uh, a few years ago, I was teaching a group of young, impressionable uh, middle and high school students, and I said something that's not true. Here's the thing that I said. I said, imagine, again, this is not true. Imagine this microphone stand as a dividing line. And on each side of the dividing line, there are two versions of me, okay, Chandler. On this side is me, who's a sinner. And I'm not right with God because I'm a sinner. We can't have a relationship because I'm a sinner. I do bad stuff, and I like the bad stuff that I do. I don't really want to stop doing that bad stuff that I do. And on this side of the dividing line is me, who's righteous. I'm perfectly righteous. When God looks at me on this side of the dividing line, I am perfect. He can say about me, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, here's what I said. I said, on this side of the dividing line, I am not loved by God. And on this side, I'm loved by God. And the only way to go from not loved by God to loved by God is through faith, to have faith in Jesus. That's not true. Here's why. Which side of the dividing line was I on when Jesus died on the cross? This side. When God looked at me and said, I'd like my son to stand in his place and pay for all his sin, which side of the dividing line was I on? This side. So here's the question for you. When did God love you? Was it when you knew that you were a sinner? You felt really sorry for being a sinner? Uh, Was it before you trusted in Jesus? Or was it after you trusted in Jesus? It was before. It was while you were still a sinner. Uh, This is why Paul says in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us the ungodly. It was while we were on this side of the dividing line that that Jesus loved us and died for us. Now, here's why that's important. When we think about our relationship with God, we can sort of, you might have just heard me say that and go, yeah, great, check, got it. Grew up in Sunday school. I got that figured out. It's, you know, it's faith alone, and I was a sinner when he loved me. That's, you know, that's great. But in our heart of hearts, it's easy for anything to sneak in there uh, into that answer for us of, what makes you right with God? Or why did God send Jesus to die for you? We can sort of go, well, I know that uh, it was, you know, because I'm a sinner and I really needed it, but there's sort of this thing about me. Like, I had a lot that I brought to the table. 
Like he really needed me in the church or he really needed me to be a small group leader or he saw that I was going to be really sorry for my sin. And so he responded to that. Uh, Anything can sneak in there, even feeling sorry for being a sinner. We can sort of believe, hey, the reason that I've got this relationship with God and that he loves me and that I'm right with him is because I figured out that I'm such a sinner and I felt really bad about it. So God responded by giving me faith. He responded by sending his son to die for me. But that's just not, uh, that's just not how it works. Or actually, this may be too on the nose because I, th- I heard uh, the musicians practicing this song before, but there, there's a song we're going to sing, which I know that's, that's a little uncouth to talk about a song that we're going to sing, but I'm doing it anyway. So you can email Jonathan if you're disappointed. But um, uh, in the song, Come Ye Sinners, the, the author of the song is trying to explain how this works. Trying to do, you know, the way, the way Paul puts it is almost like, like your soul is this garden, your heart is this garden, and the thing that's, the weed that's always going to grow up in the garden is some belief that God was responding to something good about you to give you eternal life, that God was rewarding you for something you did to give you eternal life. That's the weed that's always going to grow up. And that's why Paul says, not for a second, we can't put up with that. We've got to rip up that weed immediately. Here's the way the, the, uh, the hymn writer of Come Ye Sinners puts it. He says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. That is, don't dream about being fit for Jesus to love you, like becoming something that Jesus could love. Uh, All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Okay, now this is a bit controversial, but here's what I'm going to say. That's actually not true. Jesus does not look at you and say, you know, the one thing you've got to do to make me love you is to feel your need of me. Nope. Even your sense that you need Jesus comes from Jesus. And the guy who wrote this hymn knows that. You know how I know that? Here's the next line. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. It doesn't come from you. It comes from him. Even the sense that we need Jesus, we can sort of put that over in, in, on our resume. Like, here's the thing that I brought to the table is that I, I really need Jesus. But that's, no, that's not how it works. Here's uh, 18th century Scottish minister Thomas Boston puts it this way. He says, I do not offer Christ to you on the grounds that you have repented. Indeed, I offer him to men and women who are dead in their trespasses and sins. This gospel offer of Jesus Christ is for you, whoever and whatever you are. So listen to the way uh, Paul puts it, if the gospel really is for you. Verse 5, y'all look at verse 5. He says, We did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. All right. This is a matter of emphasis. Imagine less that Paul is saying, you know, I I had to do this to preserve the gospel for you. No, no, it's more like he's saying this. We, We had to tell them that there's nothing we bring to the table that makes God love us. There's nothing we do that makes God love us in order to preserve the gospel for you, like the real you, the you who's still a sinner, the you who still struggles with faith, 
the you who's still doing things you're ashamed of, the gospel is for that you, the real you, before you've done anything that would merit God's love. That's who the gospel's for. Uh, imagine, you, you've probably seen a video like this even recently, especially with, uh, with the hurricane in Florida and in our state. But uh, imagine for a second that a man uh, finds himself in the middle of the ocean, and he's about to drown, and he's in a, a big storm like a hurricane. And I don't know what terrible decisions that guy made to get there, but he's there. And a helicopter from the, uh, you know, the National Guard or the Coast Guard, I guess, is there, and they're, they're sort of shining the light, and they spot him. And uh, they send down a rescuer who's in this you know, awesome rescue gear, and he's got life jackets on, and uh, he's got this big uh, cable that he's attached to, and they drop down from the helicopter this, this rescuer, and they drop him right on top of this guy who's about to drown. And he's got this big harness that he straps onto that, that man who's about to drown, and he's got big hooks that he's hooking onto the harness, and he's sort of wrapping the wire around the guy over and over over. And then, uh, you know, the guy sort of looks up and gives the thumbs up to the, the guy up there on the helicopter who's got the cool job of, you know, pushing the button so that the, the wire, I guess, starts bringing the guy up. It'd be really fun to be part of one of those one day. But anyway, uh, whenever you see a video like that, the guy who's being rescued always does the same thing. They've got this harness on. They're all strapped to this, you know, big wire. And they hold on to the wire as hard as they can. Like, as hard as they can. They're holding on to it. You know, same goes if you ever go ziplining or something. It's like, hey, you holding on to that, you know, cable is not going to help you. If that harness breaks, you're done. All right, imagine that a week after that rescue, he's sitting around with his buddies. And they're like, tell us again. Tell us about the rescue. You were about to drown. What happened? And he goes, oh, well, the guy dropped down. And uh, he started putting this harness on me. He put the big wire on me. And then, man, I grabbed onto that wire so tight. And you know what, guys? I wouldn't say this to everyone, but it's a good thing I do CrossFit. Because I'm just glad I was strong enough to hold onto that wire. The rescue had nothing to do with his hold on the wire. Nothing. And if he talks like that, what he's going to do is he's going to diminish the rescuer. He'll think more of himself and less of the rescuer. It won't matter so much how strong the rescuer was. He'll be thinking about his own strength. That's why Paul says, okay, here's how it works. God loved you because he loves you, period. Not because of anything in you, good or bad. That's vertical, vertical freedom. All right, so how does this work horizontally? And that, that may, frankly, that may be the question of intrigue to you this morning because uh, if you're you know, a human being, I actually heard one counselor say, if, uh, if a person tells you they don't have any fear of man, you need to check for a pulse. Everybody is afraid of people. And uh, we feel that when we walk into rooms like this. I mean, frankly, uh, I'm standing in front of you talking. I'm, I'm scared to death of all of you. And we, we, uh, we feel this when we walk into a room full of people. We're worried about what people are going to think or the way that our outfit looks or the, you know, whether our sense of humor will come across the way we want it to, whether they like us. We just want people to like us. We're afraid of people. We have fear of man. Um, I, have, I have had my heart broken by a two-year-old before, who I'm not even one of my children, but just like a two-year-old who maybe I'm in, like, serving the nursery or, or even like a nephew or something who I, I want to play with. It's like, hey, you want to play with this toy? And two-year-old's like, I don't want to play with you. I'm like, how dare you? I'm a ton of fun. Uh, or I've heard, heard someone say this when, when, when it comes to fear of man. Uh, I had a friend in high school who actually pointed this out to me. He said, uh, 
If you're standing in your closet, and we all did this this morning, you're standing in your closet looking at the clothes that you could wear, you start to have this internal dialogue with yourself about how are people going to react if I wear this versus this? And here's what my friend in high school said. He said, whether you, once you've asked that question, how are people going to react? He says, whether you wear the jacket or don't wear the jacket, you're doing it for them. That's a devastating question. The reason is, you can't go back and unask the question. It's like the problem is that I asked the question of what are people going to think if I wear this jacket or if I wear this sweater? That's why I think I'm wearing this sweater for you. So we, uh, we do this. We walk into a room and we begin to evaluate ourselves. Um, what are the things that we use to evaluate ourselves against one another? We could use anything, anything to evaluate ourselves against each other. But things like this, beauty, am I more beautiful than that person or less beautiful? Or they're so pretty and I'm not as pretty as them. Money, how much money you have or how much money you make, the job you have, the house you live in, the car you drive, the amount of scripture you have memorized, your children's behavior compared to their children's behavior. We measure ourselves against each other. And it's pretty painful to be on the losing side of those measurements, to feel less than someone. Uh, And it can feel good to be on the winning side, to feel like, you know, I'm sort of the winner in the room. I'm the best person in the room at whatever thing I'm using to evaluate myself. We actually tend to major on those things, too. We major on the things that we're good at. We love directing conversations towards the things that we're winners at. If you've got a job you really like and you feel proud of, it's easy to talk about that job. But if you feel ashamed about the way your teenage children behave, it's hard to talk about your teenage children. So is there a way to shake that feeling of walking into a room and immediately evaluating yourself against other people? I think so. I think so. Here's the way, uh, here's the way Paul puts it. Four times in this passage, he uses the word seemed. It's very strange. Four times he says seemed. Uh, and he's, he's saying that about Peter and John and James, Jesus' brother. So these three people who are, I mean, they're massive figures in the New Testament. And he keeps saying about them, they seemed influential. They seemed influential, uh, or they seemed to be pillars. Look at the way he puts it in verse 6. He says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. All right, so let's just take Peter. This is one of the people. This is the Apostle Peter. You know, Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus restored him. He's eating fish on the beach with Jesus after he resurrected. And here's how Paul talks about him. He seemed influential. There's a place in Acts chapter 5. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament. There's a place in Acts chapter 5 where it says that people would hear that the apostle Peter was going to walk by their house or down the street near their house. And if they were sick or if they knew someone who was sick, they would try to get as close to Peter as they could. Here's what it says. So that his shadow might fall on them and they be healed. And Paul says, he seems influential. Now, it's not an insult. He's telling the truth. Here's why he can say that. Verse 8, he who worked through Peter for his ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. What's he saying? All right, Peter's shadow does not heal people. Jesus heals people. Peter's gospel does not save people. Jesus saves people. 
That had gone so deep into Paul that he can say about Peter, he seems influential. Uh, Here's how that works. For Paul, the best thing about the Apostle Peter is that Peter is in Christ. He's in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it means a lot of things, but here's just one way to think about it. Imagine a sophomore from Clemson who's got a mediocre GPA. There are plenty of those. And uh, he gets a job as the mascot. He's going to be the tiger at Clemson. When that sophomore with a mediocre GPA puts on the tiger mascot, all of a sudden, people will pay him money to show up to birthday parties. And everybody wants their picture with him. And he just has to go like this. That's it. Because when people look at him, they don't see the sophomore with the mediocre GPA. They see the tiger, and they love the tiger. All right, to be in Christ is sort of like that. Uh, If you're in Christ, then when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus, who's perfect. He sees his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Now, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, hey, if God sees me that way, I want to see you that way. When I look at you, I can say in my head and in my heart, the best thing about you is that you're in Christ. It's the best thing you've got going for you. Which, frankly, that takes away the reasons that we get intimidated by other people. Who cares how much money they make or the car that they drive or the sense of humor they have or the the way that they're well-spoken or how behaved their children are? Those are not the best things they've got going for them. The best thing going for them is that they're in Christ. Now, that has to work when we view other people. And for Paul, it works on the way he views himself, too. Do you notice he says, all right, Jesus works through Peter for his ministry, but Jesus also works through me for my ministry. So for himself, for himself, Paul says, the best thing about me is that I'm in Christ. The best thing about me is that I'm in Christ. Here's what that means. Jesus doesn't just take away your sins. He does. Jesus also takes away your trophies. Your favorite things about yourself are no longer the best thing about yourself if you're in Christ. Being in Christ becomes the best thing about you. To be in Christ means at least two things. Two things. One, you and I needed rescue. We needed rescue. We needed the Son of God to die for us, to suffer what we owe. And the second thing it means is that God was happy to do it. He was happy to do it. God loves looking at people on that side of the dividing line who are sinners, who need rescue, and rescuing them. He loves doing that. It doesn't burden him to do that. He loves to do that. You were worth it to him. When were you valuable to him? When you were still a sinner. That's the good news of being in Christ. Um, all right, so how does this play out in a room like this or in a, uh, you know, maybe in a neighborhood group or even in, in the way that you just interact with people at, at work or in your life or at the grocery store? Uh, if the best thing about everyone in this room is that you're in Christ, that means that it won't matter anymore if someone notices that trait you really like about yourself or if they compliment the shirt that you wear or if you got invited to that event or if you got a raise at work or if they ever see that picture of yourself that you really love. It means that you can see right through all those things to Jesus. You can see right through all those things to the best thing about them. All right, let's close with this. Um, 
there's this strange little verse uh, here in this passage. Verse 10. Did it catch you off guard? It says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, if we're not careful, that can sound like, hey, here's how it works. You have faith in Jesus. You're right with God. It was owing to nothing in yourself. You don't have to do anything to change your relationship with God. But remember the poor. It's like, well, that's a little strange. Why do I have to remember the poor? Well, it can't mean that remembering the poor will make you right with God. Paul's made that crystal clear. But he says, here's what he's saying. If you would like to keep it front and center that God loved you just because he loved you, one way to do that is to remember the poor. Remember the poor. Because when you remember the poor, you'll remember that you're poor. That you were poor in God's sight, and he had mercy on you. Uh, Let's close with this story. Uh, You you may have heard this from the Old Testament. King David, this is wealthy, successful King David. Uh, He's sitting around one day, and he says, Hey, is there anybody from Saul's house who's still alive? Now, Saul was his arch enemy, his nemesis. And somebody says, yeah, there's one guy who's still alive from Saul's house. His name's Mephibosheth, but he's crippled in both of his feet. Now, in David's day, to be crippled in both your feet means you're effectively worthless. You can't contribute anything to the kingdom. You can't do anything helpful. You bring nothing to the table. And David says, perfect. Tell him that he gets to eat at my table every day for the rest of his life. Uh, tell him that I want to restore to him land that belonged to his family. I want to give him uh, employees who will serve him and feed him and take care of him. I want, to, I want to take care of him. So Mephibosheth gets to come eat at King David's table. Now, I like to imagine that they go around that table every night and just for fun. It's David and some of his kids and some of his mighty warriors who go to battle with him. And then there's Mephibosheth. And they go around that table and they answer this question. Why are you here? Why are you at this table? And everybody goes around and says something like, well, I was there when David killed Goliath, or I was there when we defeated the Philistines. I was, I was there when we made this great triumph. I was there when we built this house. And it gets to Mephibosheth, and for years, he just goes, I don't know. I don't know. I got nothing. And it, maybe it takes him a few years to get it, but every night they're going around answering that question, why are you here? Why are you here? And finally, it hits Mephibosheth, and it gets to him one night, and he says, I think the reason I'm here is to make a point about what God is like. Here's the one part of the story I left out. When David asked that question, hey, is there anyone from my enemy's house who's still alive? He says, Mephibosheth is perfect because what I want to do is I want to show someone the kindness of God. That's what I want to do. What's David doing? He's remembering the poor. He's remembering the poor. Because when David looks at Mephibosheth at that table, even though he's the one who's killed Goliath. He's won the battles and stuff like that. He gets to look at Mephibosheth and go, I'm just like him. I'm just like him. I bring nothing to the table. The only reason I'm at this table is because God decided to show his love to me. Would you believe it this morning that God loves you because he loves you, period? That's good news for us. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in him we have everything that we need and that everything that he is for us comes freely, that we pay nothing because he paid everything, that we get to receive everything that he is. God, would you work that down into the places uh, in our hearts where we're ashamed about who we are, and even work it into the places in our hearts where we're proud of who we are, proud of the things that we've done. Lord, would you give us uh, the freedom of knowing just how loved we are as we are in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.